which is Matthew 7, 1 through 6. Before I get into that, though, I want to start with uh, something that David said in Psalm 138, verse 2. Uh, He says, I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name. Why? Because of your steadfast love and faithfulness, which no doubt are reasons warranting praise. But he also gives this reason. He says, it's also because you have exalted above all things your name and your word. David recognizes that God is praiseworthy because he has elevated above all things his word. And so I want to make sure we don't forget or set aside or just drift away from the reality that it is by God's word that everything came into being. It's by God's word that he accomplishes everything that he desires. It's by God's word that he became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And it's by God's word that we have Jesus' words in Matthew 7, 1 through 6. So turn with me there this morning, and I'll open us in prayer. Father, if it is true that the entirety of your word is sharper than any double-edged sword, then I pray that today's message will be a sharp, double-edged scalpel. Perform Christ-centered surgery on us this morning, just as you have in me preparing for this message. It's for your glory, Lord, that I pray. Amen. Jesus, in speaking to his disciples, and for those of us who have chosen to follow him, he's speaking to us as well. He says this, Do not judge, or you too will be judged, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. You know, it's important before we begin to accurately identify exactly what Jesus is intending when he uses the word judging in this context. The Greek word for judge that's used here can mean to discern, but it can also mean to condemn. And so we have to decide, well, which version of that Greek word is he using here? And the word derives its definition very clearly from the context. Clearly, the context does not indicate a prohibition against discernment. In fact, Jesus wastes no time in providing this clarification in verse 6. He immediately calls his disciples to discern the difference between giving sacred truths to metaphorical pigs and dogs. And then again, just a few verses later in verse 15, he says, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Jesus calls his disciples in these two verses to make discerning judgments. So he's not prohibiting discernment. Biblical scholars agree, and I think we would agree too, that the proper translation of judge in verses 1 through 5 is referring to a prohibition against the condemnation of others. A 19th century theologian F.B. Mayer said, Human nature is fond of climbing up into the judgment seat and proclaiming its decisions without hearing both sides or calling witnesses. And I think we would all agree with this. I know my kids would agree with this. If I'm sitting at a red light and it turns green and the car in front of me isn't moving, I have very little command of the facts, yet I'm very quick to condemn the person in front of me who's looking at their phone, probably posting something on Facebook, 
specifically about how they're tormenting me behind them at the light. We have a natural human tendency to draw from time to time condemning judgments about other people. This aspect of our nature is antithetical to that of our Heavenly Father's nature. And Christ calls his followers to have his Father's heart. The Father's heart is to be merciful to those who don't deserve mercy. This same passage also appears in Luke 6, 37 through 42. But right before Jesus launches into this passage in the Luke version of it, Luke sets the stage by focusing on God's mercy in verses 35 and 36. It says this, God is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. And then Luke records the same passage about not judging others. God's mercy is not a new topic at the time of this sermon. For centuries, Scripture has recorded the truth about God. Daniel 9.9 says, The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against Him. Isaiah 43 Verses 25 and 26 says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And Micah 7, 18 and 19 says, Who is a God like you who pardons sins and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. In this passage, Jesus is revealing the heart of the Father that has for centuries been repeatedly revealed. He's essentially saying that in your interaction with other people, depend on God's mercy toward you as you choose how to be toward others. Let's dive into uh, verses 1 and 2 specifically. Jesus says, Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus doesn't say this because we tend to judge others. That's a fact. Jesus is saying this because our judging others actually reveals a lack of understanding about our own brokenness before the Lord. How many of you know that God chooses to reside in two places? This is biblical. There's scripture to this effect. He has set up residence in two locations. He has two homes. Flip with me if you have your Bibles to Isaiah 57, verse 15. Isaiah 57, verse 15. Here's what it says, Isaiah 57, verse 15. For this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, residence one, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. His second residence is with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. And I want to carve out a little bit of time to talk about this because the Hebrew word for contrite actually means broken. And not just any kind of brokenness. It means a very specific kind of brokenness. This same Hebrew word appears in Psalm 34, 18. And in that verse, 34, 18, it's translated as crushed. Psalm 90, verse 3, uses the same Hebrew word, but in that verse, the word is translated as dust. This word means that God chooses to make his home in those who recognize the reality of their brokenness. 
that they are broken to the point of being crushed beyond repair, crushed to powder. This Hebrew word carries the same sentiment of the verse that began our journey in this sermon series, Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The Greek word meaning impoverished does not mean people who are lacking in spirit, but people who in their humility realize that they are so spiritually bankrupt, so powder crushed broken, that they have nothing to offer God, that they are in desperate need of his mercy. Let me try to illustrate the difference between true brokenness identified in scripture and the idea of brokenness that many of us tend to gravitate to in our human nature. And I want to do this by looking at some coffee mugs that my kids and I uh, have uh, broken to pieces, okay? My wife does know about this. The first one, you've got a, a coffee mug that's a little bit chipped, right? A little piece out of it. It's clearly broken. You can't use it. You put coffee in there, it'll fall to the ground, and coffee is liquid gold, so you wouldn't do that, right? Um, but it's fixable, okay? I think sometimes we see really good people who do a lot of really neat things as broken. We acknowledge that we're all broken, but we kind of see them as pretty fixable, right? They're not horribly broken. But other people might be broken a little bit more. This is the one that Elliot did, okay? Still, it's, it's a pretty big break, but it's a fixable break if you had enough glue. This is the one Dawson did. <laughs> some of us, some of us gravitate to the thought that maybe some people around us are this broken, right? That it would take a whole lot of glue. And maybe it's from a news story or something of somebody who's just done something horrible and we're quick to condemn. They're this broken, but you know what? Maybe I'm only this broken, right? That's our human nature at work when we think about brokenness. We're not so prideful that we say, well, I'm not broken, right? We acknowledge the brokenness. But the reality is, is we acknowledge a self-sufficient brokenness. I can fix myself if I'm this broken. But Scripture paints a different story. Scripture says that this is our level of brokenness. We're powder broken. Good luck finding enough glue and time to piece these pieces together, right? We are powder broken, crushed, desperately in need of a Savior, incapable of putting back together these pieces. You see, we gravitate to the mindset that some may even be broken beyond repair, or worse, we can drift to the belief that some people are deserving of being broken beyond repair. That's the pride of condemnation. We may even secretly, if we're honest with ourselves, in the depths of our own mind, unrevealed to the world, find ourselves hoping that God might have a special place reserved in hell just for this or that kind of person whose sin is so deplorable that that person would be deserving of such a place. I have to confess to you, I've drifted there. And those thoughts usually come to me when I am watching a news story or something on a, a court TV where they're sensationalizing someone's horrific act. And I tell you what, if it's a horrific act done to innocent children, I'm even quicker to get there. You might have had those kind of thoughts too. Maybe yours are a little different. Maybe you've gone there in your thoughts about someone who's deeply hurt you, that they hurt you so bad 
that they don't deserve to be fixed. And that while you know in your, in your um, piousness that you would never judge that person, you're secretly hoping God will. If you're like me, you've gone down this path at some point in your walk with God. You've begun to think that some people may not be as deserving of forgiveness and mercy as others. That those apart from Christ are in one of two categories of lost people, right? The desirable and deserving lost, the beautiful people we like to be around that are funny and good, or in the category of the undesirable and undeserving lost. A good way for me to check to see whether or not I'm drifting toward condemning others in this way is uncovered simply by looking at how I pray. Who am I praying will put their faith in Christ in order to have an eternally reconciled relationship with God? Who am I hoping will be in heaven with me? My list is filled with good, kind, attractive, lost people. None of the undesirable lost whose life I'm judging appear in my prayers for salvation. That's convicting to me. That's the surgical scalpel of the Holy Spirit at work in me as I studied this passage. Jesus is taking on this relativism about sin that we bring into the occasion, that we use to usher in a condemning attitude toward others. He's telling his disciples that this is flawed thinking. God doesn't say in Isaiah 57, 15 that he resides in the person whose sin, relatively speaking, is more socially deserving of redemption. He says he resides in the one who understands the reality of his or her brokenness. That he or she cannot possibly put the pieces back together. And guess what? We are all that broken. Even if we don't pause long enough to notice just how broken we are. I think that's why R.C. Sproul links Matthew 7, 1 through 6 to Matthew 18, 23 to 35 in his commentary. Flip there, Matthew 18, 23 to 35. He says, Jesus uses this parable to describe a broken, crushed to powder person who is acting like he's only a little chipped in comparison to other sinners. Turn there with me, Matthew 18, 23 to 35. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began his settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold. By the way, the expression there that's translated 10,000 bags of gold actually means an unimaginably impossible amount of money. A man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had was sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. This immeasurable amount of money, impossible to repay, canceled. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. This is about the equivalent of three months of wages. A tiny sum compared to the bazillion dollars of canceled debt. The servant grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could repay the debt. 
When the other servants saw what happened, they were outraged, went and told their master everything that had happened. Then their master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? Jesus asks us to be merciful and forgive because those people owe a tiny speck of debt to us in light of the bazillion dollars worth of debt that was canceled by him. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? You see, what I discovered in preparing this study is that as my measure of God's mercy increased, my measure of desire to condemn others decreased. I didn't make my condemnation of others shrink. The embracing of the reality of God's mercy shrunk it for me. That's amazing. I don't have to turn on in this flawed, sinful nature, turn on a habit of not condemning others. I just need to press in to the reality of my brokenness before God and his canceling of that debt. Now back to Matthew 7, verses 3 through 5. Jesus, as if the the statement before wasn't sufficient enough, he expounds upon it using a brilliant teaching method, right? He uses an analogy to connect something known to something unknown. So starting in verse 3, he says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck out of your brother's eye. I want us to be careful here, because if we mistakenly mislabel the parts of the analogy, we'll miss Jesus' point. Jesus' point with this example is not to give us a loophole that allows us to condemn with God's permission. That would be to incorrectly identify the parts of the analogy. If we label the speck as someone's offensive act toward you, and the plank is that same offensive act committed by you, but only bigger, we mislabel the analogy. Jesus isn't saying, before you condemn someone else, just examine yourself to make sure you're innocent of whatever that person is being condemned for. And if you're in the clear, condemn away. That's not what he's saying. Rather, he calls us to shift our eyes to the Father's mercy first and then allow the remedy we have received from a merciful God to guide us on how to react towards someone who has done something to offend us, to hurt us. The correct identification of the parts of the analogy are that the speck is someone's offensive act toward you while the plank is actually referring to all of your offensive acts toward God. That's a massive plank. With this speck plank analogy, Jesus gives us the solution for how to avoid the temptation to condemn. The reason we condemn others is that we forget to remember our own infinitely massive plank. Jesus basically says that when we deal with our own infinitely massive plank, we end up discovering how speck-like others' offenses toward us are in comparison. John chapter 8 illustrates this point 
perfectly. Turn with me there. John chapter 8, starting in verse 3. This is a familiar passage to us. This is the passage where everybody's trying to catch Jesus in a trap. So they bring this woman caught in adultery and they say, you know, the law of Moses says we're supposed to stone this woman to death. What do you say, right? You can picture the scene, stones in hand. They're trying to trap him, right? But what does Jesus do? He bends over, he starts to draw on the sand. They're all waiting for an answer. He stands up and he says, if any of you are without sin, let him be the first to throw the stone at her. Then he goes back down to writing in the sand and people start to drop their stones and they leave, right? And then he looks up and he sees that everybody's gone. He says, did nobody condemn you? And she says, no one. And he said, then neither do I condemn you. The one with no plank at all in his eyes says, neither do I condemn you. Now I want you to notice here that Jesus did not say, if any one of you has never committed adultery, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. He said, if any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. This is the plank spec analogy illustrated. When the plank comes into view, men drop their stones. Her flaws seem as a speck in comparison to the entirety of debt we owe to God. You know, when I read this, I wonder if when Jesus bent over to write in the dirt, if he had been writing out Hosea 6.6. We don't know, but I wonder if that's what he was writing. Hosea 6.6 says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Our Heavenly Father wants us to know him. I think because he knows that the more we know him, the more we long to be like him the more we long to be like his mercy. The speck-plank relationship in this analogy says, person X's offense toward me is but a speck in comparison to my enormous offenses toward God. Remember how powder-like broken we are, how incapable we are to fix our own brokenness. We are broken beyond repair because there's an infinite gap between our sinful state apart from Christ and God, who is without flaw. Thankfully, Jesus, who is entirely set apart from sin himself, took on the condemnation that sin deserves, so that his perfect righteousness is credited to us who believe. As a result, a perfect separation from sin that I didn't earn, that I don't deserve, is given to me by faith in Christ, and the debt is fully paid on my behalf. My obligation to pay any of my outstanding debt to God is canceled thanks solely to the sufficiency of Christ to redeem. That is the plank-spec relationship Jesus is referring to. He is saying that once we get our plank removed, we see others more clearly. We see others' offenses differently. We see the reality of their eternity more urgently. Our removal of their speck is more along the lines of pointing them to Jesus than it is condemning them for their tiny little insignificant offenses toward us. A love and compassion emerges even toward the undesirable lost. This becomes the natural byproduct of plank removal. Condemnation is removed and our plank is dealt with. The debt of that tiny speck is easily forgiven when we remember not to forget all 
that was forgiven when Christ removed our plank and canceled our debt. How can we not be compelled to point others to our Savior for their own plank removal? Finally, this passage concludes in verse 6 with this quirky little verse that really seems like more of an abrupt change of subject than anything else. It isn't, though. It's very connected to the previous five verses. A few years back, I saw a funny commercial on TV. I don't even remember what, what it was that they were advertising, but it depicted a man playing fetch with his dog. And another man noticed that the baseball he was throwing, that the dog was chewing to pieces, had Babe Ruth's autograph on it. And his, his dumbfounded words were ignored by the individual as he continued to play fetch with his dog, tearing it to pieces. The man had no clue as to the value of the object in his hand. And he continued to play catch with this priceless baseball. This is exactly the point Jesus is making here. A.W. Pink gives this commentary on verse 6. He says, The unsaved are in no condition today for the gospel till the law is applied to their hearts. For by the law is the knowledge of sin we begin to appreciate the value of God's mercy the more we recognize the depth of our own depravity. The same can be said of any of Jesus' sacred truths. We are in no condition to appreciate the value of Jesus' sacred truths in a passage like this if we are not seeking hard after the Father with a desire to understand Him better. God gives us clarity of vision. So I have to ask the question, what will your response be to Jesus' words in this passage? Will you respond like the metaphorical dogs and pigs who completely miss the eternal value of what is presented here? Or will you respond like that of someone who is seeking hard after the Father's own heart? In Matthew's first six little verses of chapter 7, Jesus reveals something amazingly valuable about the heart of the Father. In your interaction with others, depend on God's mercy toward you as you choose how to be toward others. A right response to this eternally valuable truth would be to recognize the reality of our powder-crushed brokenness before the Lord. Ask Him to work this truth deep into your understanding of who you are apart from Christ in the presence of His perfect holiness. And then praise Him for choosing this infinitely massive plank that represents the enormous debt that we owe Him. That in our faith in Christ, He would have it fully paid in its entirety. He would cancel the debt. He would set us free. If you are here today and you've never made this connection, now's the time. You cannot possibly create for yourself a standing before a holy God any more than you can take the powder-crushed coffee mug and glue it back together into its former state. You're too broken to fix yourself. That's why we all desperately need Jesus. I invite you this morning to get this matter settled with God. Don't delay. In fact, after the service, we'll probably have people up here who can help you with that, who would love to pray with you. When we depend on God's mercy as we should, a yes answer emerges to this question. Do others see God's mercy when they see you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father.